Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. President Carter, I'll introduce our guests first and then come back to you because I'd like to have you carry this conversation forward for us. And I'd like to, on my immediate right, um, welcome Madam Li Xiaolin, who is the um, Vice President of the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries. I can't stand on. Madam Lee is, is a, an old friend of the Carter Center and a special friend of the Carters as she's been a, a host in her association for many of President and Mrs. Carter's visits to China. Uh, she brings to this uh, platform a special knowledge of America. She was one of the first uh, students to uh, do graduate work here at UCLA where she got her master's degree um, back in the 1980s. And so having her come back and give her perspective on this relationship is, is, is extremely important. To, uh, President Carter's right is um, Mary Brown Bullock. Professor Bullock is a, a distinguished professor at Emory University, but many of you know her as the president of Agnes Scott, where she was a, uh, a graduate uh, uh, um, uh, Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude or some such thing, Mary, in those days, and <laughs> on, to, uh, on to Stanford, where she got a PhD. My relationship with Mary goes back to the 1970s because when we first, I was at the Rockefeller Foundation and was interested in promoting U.S.-China uh, relations. She was uh, running the Committee on Scholarly Communication with the People's Republic of China. So her knowledge of the importance of people-to-people -people contact and exchanges runs very deep, and I hope that she can shed some light on that as well during the course of our conversation. And finally, to um, her right is our friend and known to many of you, the director of our China program, Dr. Yao Lu. Um, he, as you know, is an expert on American history. He got his PhD from Emory in American history, but has been responsible for this wonderful program that we have here at the Carter Center. I was hoping that the screen would still be down so I could give uh, imprint on your mind uh, his website that is really a very, very valuable uh, reference point for anyone who wants to check up on the internal discussions and the external commentary on China and its um, elections and politics and changes going on. It's called www.chinaelections.net. And if you make your homepage www.cartercenter.org, then you can always be in touch with all of our programs and then go and pick up on China elections. Now, this has been presented as a conversation. It really is kind of a misrepresentation in my mind because it really is a seminar, and it's a seminar that is being led by Professor President Jimmy Carter, who has been lecturing on China at his classes at Emory this week, and who, in fact, has a great deal to teach us. Um, he was just not present at the creation of normalization 31 years ago, but he, along with Deng Xiaoping, as you know, was one of the creators. And I urge you, if you haven't already, and many of you have, I know, seen the photo exhibit, um, which Madam Lee and others were so gracious to put together and put on display around the U.S., but the photo exhibit shows the history of U.S.-China relations and then concentrates on how much has happened since President Carter and Deng Xiaoping were able to get normalization done. Um, the normalization process is a comprehensive one. A lot of credit is rightly given to President Nixon for opening China 
But let us not forget that was primarily a geostrategic calculation. That was tied up at the time of the Vietnam War. What President Carter did was to try to get our two countries moving together in a much more comprehensive way, our peoples together. And how far we have come in 30 years was so dramatically shown just two weeks ago when President Hun Jintao and President Obama signed a communique of no less than 4,000 words covering the whole gamut of global, regional, bilateral, personal, human rights issues that make up this important bilateral relationship. And if you read the New York Times uh, this morning on the reference of how China and America are holding the rest of the world, uh, holding their breath, waiting to see how we two countries approach the Copenhagen Conference on Climate Change. And I'm sure there'll be some questions on that along the way. But there is more to this relationship by President Carter than the normalization and what he did as president. If you go and look at the museum that has been so brilliantly and beautifully renovated recently, the Presidential Museum, you get a flavor of the China connections that go back to his very boyhood, a time when China was run by warlords and his interest and compassion and interest in the Chinese people began right through being a young naval officer and into his post-presidency, most recently a week or so ago when he and Mrs. Carter were overbuilding houses in China for Habitat on Humanity. It's a reminder to all of us that in different ways we can contribute to improving U.S.-China relations and mutual understanding. This is not just the business of presidents. However, governments provide the enabling environment that allow for our citizens, for us citizens to act. So I'd like to begin tonight's discussion um, with a, the decision to normalize relations. How was it done? What were the politics behind it? Whether it has met our expectations, both Chinese and American, the current opportunities, challenges, obstacles to advancing that relationship and what we might do to improve it. Now rest assured, President Carter, that's not what I'm expecting you to answer all at once. What we'd like you to focus on is the normalization decision and what went into that decision because my modest reading of U.S.-China relations is that we could have had normalization in 1949 when you were there shortly before, shortly after you were there when the Chinese um, Republic, People's Republic was established and the Chinese government would have liked it. But Dean Acheson, who studied this very carefully, you know, for General Marshall and President Truman, uh, laid out the reasons why it would be really smart for the United States to respond positively to the overtures from China, but our domestic politics precluded that. So we had to wait nearly 30 years for President Carter to step in. And it was not normalization under Nixon or Ford. It was normalization under our 39th president, Jimmy Carter. So if you wouldn't mind, sir, as I go down and get wired for the conversation, telling uh, us a bit about the calculation you went through and how challenging it might have been uh, to get this normalization affected with Deng Xiaoping. That would be a nice way to begin the conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you, John. Well, when I became president, I inherited a very disturbed relationship between the United States and China. That is, uh, a lot of people who wanted to see us make the logical decision to have diplomatic relations with the mainland of China were very frustrated. And a lot of those who had uh, cast their lot entirely with Taiwan were very self-satisfied because President Nixon had been to uh, China in 1972 
and had declared there was only one China, but uh, refused and failed, as did his successor, President Ford, to take any action to move toward normalizing diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. And this was primarily because of tremendous pressure from the right wing of not only the Republican Party, but the American uh, news media and the American uh, business corporations and others who had formed alliances with their compatriots uh, in Taiwan. So this meant that we were estranged still from the People's Republic of China. I entered the White House, though, with a predisposition to change that circumstance. And I began, as soon as we could, to contact uh, Deng Xiaoping, who was the vice premier but the undoubted ruler of the government of China, to see if he was willing to negotiate with me on making steps toward normalizing relations between our two countries. And uh, he sent back some mixed signals, because I don't think he had made his mind then on what to do. I chose as my representative in Beijing, uh, Leonard Woodcock, who had no international experience, but was the best negotiator, perhaps, in America, because he had been the leader of the United Automobile Workers of America, and they had negotiated with Ford and, and Chrysler and, 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 and General Motors very successfully, and I knew that he was a darn good negotiator. So that's what I wanted in China. So I sent him over there as my representative, and we began tedious, slow, sometimes frustrating, step-by-step -step progress toward uh, my goal of normalizing diplomatic relations. We kept this completely secret because it would have been maybe um, politically suicidal, uh, certainly to the extent of aborting my effort, if the general public or the Congress had known what we were doing. So I knew that the State Department was a, a sieve. Uh, you couldn't send anything to the State Department without it being in the Washington Post the next day if certain interests wanted to kill what you were doing. So we never sent any diplomatic messages from me to Leonard Woodcock or vice versa, except just from the White House. No message ever went from the State Department. And uh, step by step, though, we began to make progress. And finally, it began to boil down to some arguments between me and Deng Xiaoping, primarily about the status of Taiwan because they wanted me to acknowledge, which I was willing to do, that Taiwan was a part of China. However, we had a treaty with Taiwan, between the United States and Taiwan, that said that we had to provide them with uh, military assistance and that we had to recognize uh, th their, our obligation to them and so forth. And I wanted to uh, negotiate this difficult issue with Deng Xiaoping. My premise was that we would withdraw from Taiwan, we had a one-year period that we had to wait, and that we would still provide Taiwan with defensive weapons only, but we would recognize that Taiwan was part of China. And I wanted Deng Xiaoping to agree that if they had a problem between the mainland and the island of Taiwan, that it would be resolved peacefully. So to make a long story short, which I haven't done so far, uh, <laughs> we reached a compromise. I would make a public statement that any problem would be resolved peacefully, and he would not disagree. <laughs> he would say that uh, the United States could uh, not provide any offensive weapons with China, and I would not disagree. And that's what we did. So to my surprise, about the second week in December of 1978, 
Deng Xiaoping came, sent me word through Leonard Woodcock that he agreed with everything that I had proposed. I didn't have anything to argue about. So we had a simultaneous announcement in Beijing and the United States of America at exactly the same time uh, that we were normalizing relations as of the first day of January 1979. And I think perhaps equally as important with the Chinese people was that three days later, Deng Xiaoping announced that he was implementing a, a tremendous transformation in the culture and economics internally of China, his great reform program. And so those two things, one on the 15th of December, one on the 18th of December, now has transformed China and the United States and the relationship between our two countries, and I think maybe even, if I can be so bold as to say, the rest of the world. Because that new alliance between these two great nations China rapidly becoming much greater than it had been in its economic strength and its relationship with the other parts of the world has been really a pleasant surprise to me. And we've maintained, with some ups and downs in the last 30 years, mutually respectful relationship between the United States and China. So that's uh, kind of a summary of the key steps that were taken, which may be the most profoundly important thing that I decided that affects America and the world in years to come. Well, thank you very much. I wonder if, if, if Madam Lee might reflect a bit on how you saw this announcement of the normalization or Yahweh as well of when you were sitting in China and suddenly had this announcement thrust upon you. Mm. Uh, actually, I was the, at that time, 1979, I worked in the French, French Association for almost four years because I graduated from University of Wuhan, majoring in English. So I began to work in the Friendship Association almost for 35 years. But we were so happy to see the diplomatic relations being, uh, being announced at the time, the normalization uh, of our two countries. Because uh, to us, since uh, you know, we grew up during the, actually I was born, in 53, that was the time of Korean War. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I grew up, I, you know, we watched movies about Korean War. And we read news about the Vietnam War. So we thought Americans at the time, the impression, just like monsters. But after the, you know, actually Nixon's visit, the association at that time was the only one which could receive American friends. So each year we received 12 delegations from the US and each delegation was composed of about 20 to 30 people. So that's my, after I graduated from university, I began to work with American friends. So it totally changed my image of American people because I thought all American friends were very polite, well-educated, like we Chinese always say, leaders first, but American people say ladies first. So that's very different. <laughs> and also this year marks the 30th anniversary for me coming to the United States. In 1979, actually May 1979, accompanied governor from Hubei province, Mr. Chen Pixian, to come to visit the United States. That was the first, we call the province and the state, 
like sister-city relationship being signed in May of 1979. I could show you another example. I couldn't eat any food, Western style, so I almost died of starvation. <laughs> Only thing I could eat, there was uh, bread with butter. However, today, I could show you the, how many restaurants like McDonald's in China, over 1,000 throughout the whole country. <laughs> 2,500 Kentucky Fried Chickens. <laughs> they are junk food, but see how young people now like them. <laughs> that shows all these changes. So we really appreciate, just like President Carter said this afternoon, he said uh, maybe another 100 years, maybe 1,000 years, the relationship between China and the United States would still be considered as the most important bilateral relationship. So I appreciate that very much. As also, like you mentioned, our great leader, Deng Xiaoping, who signed diplomatic relationship with you, the treaty, so communicate with you. You, know, we, you could also see the 30 years of Chinese government practicing opening up policy. So tremendous changes have taken place in China. So that all, we should say, it's not a coincidence, but it's true because of this relationship because all this cooperation with American people, American friends, China now makes such a big progress. Mary, you went yes. to China. Oh, I'm sorry, President Carter. Well, you know, in July of 1978, I was in Washington at the National Academy of Science. And one night, I received a phone call from Mike Oxenberg, huh? who was on a plane coming back from China. Hmm? President Carter had sent his science advisor, Frank Press, to China to demonstrate that the United States was interested in having extensive ties in education and in science and in technology. And this group was coming back from China. So I was asked to come to Andrews Air Force Base to meet the group. And I was told then that uh, Deng Xiaoping had said that he wanted to send, uh, at least beginning in January, 500 Chinese students to the United States, and we needed to get ready. This was, in my world at that time, absolutely unanticipated. For years, we had hoped that maybe you would have five or 10 students go from the United States to China, and, and vice versa. But suddenly, the thought that China was going to really open up its educational circles was unbelievable. Now, they never gave way that normalization was in the process of being discussed. Yeah. But I had a sense something was going to happen, <laughs> you know, as a result of that. Right. But John, to get back to your broader statement, I think the normalization process that President Carter put into place was really quite distinctive because when Deng Xiaoping came, they signed many different agreements. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a, a political relationship. There were many layers of uh, both uh, governmental relations, people-to-people relations, commercial relations. So clearly you envisioned from the beginning a really broad and deep uh, set of relations with China. John, can I add a word? I, I'm Please. trying to preempt. This is a conversation. You're, you're our professor. Well, to follow up on Frank Press' uh, visit to China concerning student exchange, uh, when I was president, I rarely got waked up in the middle of the night by one of my assistants. But one night, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I got this telephone call from Frank Press. 
my science advisor, who was in Beijing, and I woke up groggily. I said, who is it? He said, Frank Prince. I said, what are you, what's the matter? Uh, is something bad wrong? He said, no. He said, I'm with Deng Xiaoping. He's standing right next to me. And he's asked me a question. Can we send 500 students to, to be educated in American universities? And he won't wait for me to get an answer. He wants an answer now. <laughs> and I said, you tell Deng Xiaoping he, he can send 100,000 students. And I hung up the phone. And uh, within three or four years after we normalized relations, we had 100,000 Chinese students in American universities. So he was very surprised about that. He, he later offered to send me 5 million Chinese uh, immigrants. <laughs> I offered to send him 10,000 American news reporters. He said, no, you keep, <laughs> you keep your reporters, I keep my people. I, I don't mind uh, being interrupted by President Carter, because <laughs> uh, when you have two presidents, President Carter, President Bullock, two vice presidents, President uh, you know, Li Xiaoling and, and President uh, uh, Strimlaw, you know, I don't want to say anything. We yeah. all know who's in charge, Yahweh. We all well, know who's in charge. Uh, in uh, December, on December the 16th, uh, 1978, I was uh, 18 years old. I was a sophomore in college. You know, my wife is in, in the audience. We're of the same class. We're astounded to hear that the two countries are normalizing relationship. You know, I thought either President Carter, there's something wrong with him, or there's something wrong with our great leader because China and the United States, what are we talking about? Because <laughs> in China, Madame Lee mentioned, you know, we grew up with the mission that is to destroy the United States. And we truly believe uh, China is getting better and better, and the United States is getting worse and worse. <laughs> you know, there, there is really no need for the two countries to come together. You know, we're equipped with a language and that will expose the vices and the corruption and degeneration of this country, and then we're going to be victorious. <laughs> and uh, I never imagined uh, so many years later I would work you know, for President Carter himself. <laughs> and uh, uh, last year I wrote a book uh, which is called uh, Barack Obama, the man uh, who shall change America. I use that title because I'm working for one president who has already changed the world. <laughs> uh, lastly, uh, there is a saying in China, uh, so 30 years you're on the east side of the river, another 30 years you're on the west side of the river. So down the road, in another 30 years, United States and China, there will be so many ferries across the Pacific, we don't really mind which side we are on. We're going to be all together, and President Carter actually run the first ferry. So, uh, like so many uh, Chinese or Chinese Americans here, we all thank you for opening the door that we're able to come to this great country. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Madam Lee, you said you wanted to comment on President Carter's visits to China. Because. Uh, you know, we are very happy to play host for President Carter's visit to China several times. Yeah. Especially, um, you know, extremely happy that President Carter could come to my hometown to be with villagers who have never seen foreign face in all their lives. And the first time they saw the President of the United States. So they were very much surprised. My father used to be the president of a country from 1983 to 1988, 
one term. So he grew up in a very poor family, but joined the revolution. But uh, he was the first governor of Hubei province after 1949, New China was established. And he was the first uh, financial minister serving for 16 years. Later on, he became the president of the country. So that was my dream, that someday President Carter could visit my hometown. And he made it early <laughs> this year, January of uh, 2009. So I still remember that the, our villagers asked you several questions. One of the questions that our villagers asked, why President Carter chosen Hongan County, that's my hometown, to visit? Then and he said a very interesting answer, very interesting. You know, that's what I could never forget. He said my father used to be a farmer growing peanuts. And so did you. <laughs> and he said my father used to serve in the army, fighting against the Japanese invaders. And so did you. You were a soldier at that time and fighting against fascism. And my father served as the president of a country. So were you. So my father worked very hard to promote friendship and mutual understanding between China and the United States. So was President Carter. So is President Carter. So that's the answer I will never forget. Yes. So we thank you very much for promoting the friendship and mutual understanding between the Chinese people and, and American people. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You know, it's very important for leaders to exchange secret agreements that can break the ice. But the most important foundation on which future relations will depend is the personal trust that evolves between the people of America and the people of China. And the realization that grows among all people in the world that this is probably, I think without question, the most important bilateral relationship on which world peace and future economic progress depends. I was just reading the New York Times this morning, and one of the major articles on, in the New York Times, which I think John may have mentioned, is that European leaders are distressed because they have been in the forefront of the issue of global warming leading up to the Copenhagen uh, meeting. But now, since President Obama is coming there and the Prime Minister of China is coming there, they'll be in the distant background. Because what really matters 10, 15, 20 years down the line on this issue of climate change is what is decided in Beijing and what's decided in Washington. And the cooperation between our two countries is crucial to the effectiveness of decisions made in either capital. That's just one example of many things that uh, shows how important this relationship is. And I think all of Americans realize that when President Obama was in Beijing this recently, he realized we owe you $800 billion. <laughs> so we have to be a little bit careful about our major creditor and make sure that the American dollars stay sound so that the tremendous deficit that we're going to have in our budget this year, a trillion dollars, somebody will lend us the money 
to pay that difference. And the main place we'll go to get the money is from China. So those ties of, of military cooperation and understanding and economic development and climate change and, and people exchange, all of them are, are rapidly growing in importance to ourselves and to the rest of the world. In, in the communique between Hu Jintao and, and President Obama, they did have reference to areas where they agree to disagree. A concern of yours it's, over many years is human rights. Yeah. Um, it's important for our two peoples, I think, to realize that internally we have very complex processes. I think the Chinese are accustomed to seeing the kind of debates going on in the US Congress and between the Congress and the presidency. But for us Americans trying to understand the increasing complexity of China, uh, we rely on Yahweh's website and other sort of avenues in. But it would be nice if, if, if you could talk a bit about, uh, President Carter, what kind of advice are you going to give in your next book when you reflect on your presidency and you're saying that President Obama has some of the same issues, including China? Um, do you have any thoughts on, on how to avoid misunderstandings that could arise over very sensitive internal issues? Well, yesterday I lectured in Mary's class, and one of the questions I got from a student was, how does the United States preach to China on human rights when we have uh, Guantanamo prison still open and the United States has been guilty of torture, even acknowledged by American leaders as legitimate in prisons like Agraev with horrible photographs made. And I told them we don't have a right to preach to others. We have a difference of opinion about basic human rights and it's very, very important. If you ask the average American on the street to define the most important human rights, they would automatically say freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, trial by jury, uh, and, and that would just about be it. But if you ask somebody in a developing country like China about human rights, they would say a right to have a decent home and to have a job and to have a right to education and the right to health care as well as uh, the right to have a voice in the selection of my own leaders. So that the definition of human rights is quite different. It's, it's uh, almost mandatory for a president when he goes to China now to talk about um, Tibet and to talk about the Uyghurs and the far distant western part of China. But we have to be careful not to preach to others because uh, China looks upon that question in, in quite a different way. One of the pressures on the Chinese government in the last 10 or 15 years, not imposed by us, but on, by the own people, is how to equalize the tremendous economic benefits that have come from the free enterprise system in China. Because they, along the coastal areas of China, to simplify, they've had fairly rapid increase in per capita income, living standards. But on the far western part and in places like Tibet, the progress has been very slow. So the Chinese feel a need to improve the economic status of those distant communities. And they send in Han Chinese to improve their economic status. And in the process, some of the customs and religious uh, commitments of those distant groups have become challenged. So we have to understand the reason for Chinese government decisions. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't all insist on human rights 
as defined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which every member of the United Nations has adopted. So a difference in interpretation, yes. Mutual respect, yes. And insistence on perfect human rights for both countries, yes. But that, that is one of those issues where we disagree, but we have to learn how not to be disagreeable to the extent of estrangement. Would you add any on, onto that list, Yahweh? Uh, very quickly, I think uh, Paige is walking oh. onto the stage, so it's time uh, to take questions. But uh, uh, misunderstanding, I think, by the Americans of China uh, has been uh, so much in, in the politicking of the United States, you know, from Truman downwards to Nixon, it's containing China. And from Nixon to President Carter, it's engagement of China. And then suddenly it became China has to be contained and engaged at the same time. So we call that engagement. And then President Bush in 2005 said, you know, we are actually responsible stakeholders. And then early this year, uh, President uh, Obama now is changing that perception of China uh, into something called uh, strategic reassurance. You know, the Chinese side is kind of confused. You know, <laughs> what kind of strategy do you want us to reassure? You know, in terms of bilateral relationship, you know, China has no intention nor uh, capability to challenge the supremacy of the United States. So as far as the Chinese uh, leaders are concerned, you know, we're not going to challenge the U.S., but the U.S. seems to be a little nervous, you know, indication of maybe China as a rising economic power is going to replace. So I think the two sides really uh, need to come together and see the true intention of each other. And that intention is to improve uh, the understanding of each other so that, as I mentioned, I think Madame Lee mentioned about McDonald's, you know, there's the theory uh, of golden arch. You know, countries with McDonald's don't ever fight each other. So we hope that's going to be the case. <laughs> Sure. Because uh, I think uh, China is a country with 5,000 years, we think, splendid history. We have a great war, we have uh, all these kind of, uh, you know, touching, uh, interesting stories. But United States, we think, is a country with, uh, you know, you always consider yourself as a young country. To us, we feel you know, it's really a great country. You have your own, you know, historical backgrounds, and we have, we have uh, our own but we must find something in common because China is a country with 1.3 billion population. So it's, it's not easy for us to make uh, such uh, economic growth in the past 30 years. But we talk about the human rights issue. We still think that we have already made some progress because uh, you could not judge a country by its uh, only the ideological differences mm -hmm. or conflicts or it's the political systems. So each country has its own history, historical background, and a cultural background. I would like to use a quote our president Hu Jintao's words. He said he tried to build our country as a harmonious country. When you think about harmonious in Chinese, means 和谐, two characters. But when you, read the, when you separate them to look at these two characters, he on the left side means food. Right side means mouth. You need to get enough things to eat. Xie on the left side means speak. On the right side means everybody has right to speak freely. That means if we have enough food to eat, then we can speak freely. 
then we will build a harmonious society. <laughs> That's the ex explanation you know, we understand of uh, harmonious. <laughs> so we try to you know, change our country, obviously including political you know, reform, but it just takes some time because we still have 70% of people living in the countryside. You know, we try to improve their living standard. You know, we try to help everybody to be rich, to enjoy our lives. Just uh, like show you another example, when I studied in UCLA, California, for my master degrees. So a lot of people asked me what the culture shock was. <laughs> I told them, supermarkets. <laughs> because in China at that time, there was no supermarkets at all. Then I also told them, freeway. No freeway in China at that time. But today, supermarkets are everywhere throughout the whole country. Now we build about 60,000 kilometers freeway connecting whole countries. But people will say you could not only count about the length, but also the width. You see the United States freeway, you know, much wider than China's freeway, <laughs> only two lanes. So that means we have much to do to improve our country. But definitely, we don't want to compete with America because we think we need really to build people-to-people -people friendship in order to deepening the understanding, trying to avoid all that kind of conflicts. That's from the bottom of my heart. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we might, we might have the best freeways, but the last time <laughs> Rosenauer in Shanghai, we went from downtown to the airport on a train 310 miles per hour, the fastest train on earth, and just as smooth as it could possibly be. So China's way ahead of us in many ways, mm -hmm. and we're ahead of China in some ways. But I think one of the characteristics of the Chinese is that they are, this is presumptuous, they are inherently self-confident. Uh, if there are times when the Chinese people and their leaders see other nations in the world ahead of them, they don't get frantic or desperate. They are patient in a firm belief that eventually China will survive and maybe even prevail. So it's a great lesson for anybody to learn in dealing with the Chinese uh, that they are not inferior, they don't have to lie to you. If the Chinese tell you something, you can depend upon it. And uh, that's a very good uh, characteristic to have when you're negotiating difficult issues. You can tell I love the Chinese people. Mary, Mary, I know you love the Chinese people as well, and, and you are a, a veteran of exchange programs. And Madam Lee has, has talked about the importance of connecting our two countries in a historic context. And while China is an ancient civilization, three of us on this panel are older than the People's Republic of China. And the People's Republic of China was a political human creation as all political systems. The American system's 220 years old, so by constitutional terms, we're a little bit older. What would you tell students today who are really interested in understanding where China is moving in its grappling with the profound questions of political reform as well as economic reform? 
to, to, to specialize? What do you think is possible for exchanges and for priorities today if, for young people who want to do well by Chinese-American cooperation in the long term with an eye on these basic need to get ourselves in, in the same wavelength on, on, on these important issues of political reform? You know, uh, one of our students asked President Carter yesterday, uh, what, the, what should I do with my life, you know? Almost, it was That's almost, right. what should I do with my life? And President Carter said, the most important relationship is U.S.-China relations. And whether you're in business or education or government, you know, put your future there. I try to tell students, and there are many in the audience here, one of the most important things is to go and live in China and to go and visit China. When I speak to high school students, I say, you know, even if you just go for a week uh, to Shanghai and try to stay a homestay but just experience China, I feel that you have to experience the modernity of China at the same time you study about the government and the challenges that the government has. And you need those two things together, really. So um, when students study about the um, politics of China, one of the most interesting things is to talk about the trajectory of China since 1989. You know, at 1989, after Tiananmen, outside observers thought this government would collapse mm and would become a pariah government. No one could have imagined that China would have recovered so well diplomatically uh, and economically. And so one of the interesting things to trace, really, is how has this government, the Chinese Communist Party, really learned from the mistakes of the past and tried to adapt to the current situation. Now, we might or might not agree with all aspects of this system, but watching and learning and really trying to understand what has happened, I think is absolutely critical so that you don't come in with just a, a knee-jerk kind of reaction. Mm -hmm. so. Thank you. Uh, we have had some questions from the audience. I'll ask a couple of them now and see how far we go. One of them is a particularly appealing to me from the Carter Center perspective. China has become heavily involved and invested in Africa and Latin America in recent years. What roles are China and the United States complementary or contradictory on these two continents? Do you have any thoughts on that, President Carter? Since well, yeah, uh, the Carter Center has had, uh, uh, still has uh, relationships or projects in about 70 countries. And we travel a lot. I've, I've probably been in 15 countries in the last month. Uh, and everywhere you go in the world, whether it's in uh, Latin America or Africa, no matter where, you see the burgeoning presence of China, sometimes in a very benevolent way. Uh, we've been in several countries, for instance, that were preparing for a major a soccer tournament. And we see a, a new stadium being built, and the leaders tell us with a great deal of pride and appreciation, it's a gift of China. China provided the money and the workmen and, and built this stadium for them. and uh, and. Obviously, China has other projects where the government pays China to do very sub superb construction. So China's developing not only economic ties with countries that in the past were outside their purview or interest, but also ties of uh, trade and commerce that are going to be permanent. And one thing that China is looking for with a prospect of enormous expansion economically is raw materials. 
And that includes uh, not only oil, uh, we hear a lot about oil, but also zinc and uh, iron and gold and, and uh, bauxite to make aluminum and everything else. So China's making investments there, and not only in, in minerals of that kind, but also in agriculture products to make sure China has a future supply of adequate soybeans, for instance. So they're making major investments in Brazil. We see this all over the world. And, and, and it's a rapidly increasing Chinese presence. I don't see this as a threat to America, uh, but I do see it as a, as a, as a, as a demonstration that, that in a very quiet way, China is expanding its influence in the world much more broadly and rapidly than the Chinese leaders are willing to acknowledge. They are really aggressive and ambitious in, in planning the Chinese presence of friendship and trust and mutual benefit all over the world. And I think it's good for the countries involved, and it need not be a source of alarm to America either. Would you like to add to that, Madam Lee, because I know you're in, responsible for a lot of exchanges beyond just the United States. Um, I would like to say a few words about the Friendship Association, where I'm, I've been working for 35 years. So the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries was established in 1954. So we have a history of about 55 years. So in the past 55 years, we have already established friendly contacts and communication with less than 600 NGOs <laughs> within 140 countries in the world. <laughs> Not only United States, but other countries, obviously, including African countries. I thought we were the only one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I'm in charge of uh, American affairs. But uh, we have a lot of uh, you know, exchanges between China and other countries in the world. I will show you another example. We are authorized by the State Council to coordinate Sister Cities program. Mm. So since 1975, we have already established 1,600 affiliations between China and other cities or provinces or states in the world. Through so this project, all kinds of exchanges being carried on, including agriculture, including educational sports, so on and so forth. So we, you know, a lot of exchanges you know, we have been doing. So next year, we will host the second International Sister Cities Conference during Shanghai Expo, Inter Inter World Expo. So we definitely hope President Carter could join us. <laughs> you will meet some African friends, mayors <laughs> or governors. So that will be in September of 2010. So I will see you there. <laughs> I think it would be a mistake not to mention the fact tonight that under uh, Yahweh Liu's leadership, the Carter <laughs> Center has very close uh, yes. ties with China, a uh, contract with the government of China for the last 10 years. Uh, we monitor the elections in little villages, for instance. There are about 600,000 little villages in China, more or less, with 900 million people living in them. And they're not part of the Communist Party system, but they have very beautiful democratic elections, which we monitor. And we now are expanding our relationship with the government of China to help uh, with economic development in those little villages and also cooperating with China in an interesting way in trying to improve agricultural production in Africa. Yes. So here, United States, the Carter Center at least, 
and China will be working to improve the lives not only in the little villages of China, but also the little villages of Africa. Those are very wonderful opportunities for us to get to know the Chinese in the best possible way as, as equal partners. It certainly is, and we hope that this can expand, and perhaps one way to think about this is having American students and Chinese students sometime go to a third country to create a more triangular understanding because we're trying to exist in a very complicated world. I, yeah, yeah, well, you might want to say a, a, a word or two about how you've seen this attitude of China changing over the years. You've looked at it from an American perspective with regard to uh, third countries. I think the relationship uh, China had with African and Latin American countries in the past used to be very political. Uh, China needed their support. China needed their votes. Uh, even before U.S. and China normalized the relationship, China actually was carried into the United Nations despite U.S. objection by the votes from African and Latin American countries on their sedan. So China has always been uh, grateful to the support from these countries. Now that relationship has changed more and more to economic after China has become an economic powerhouse. But I think China does need to look at that. There is the shift that this relationship is becoming once again social and political. You know, there is no denial that China's assistance to African countries and Latin American countries are huge and massive. But there is also uh, no denial that uh, the, the way that China is providing these assistance is a little bit different uh, from you know, the, the World Bank and, and other uh, Western countries you know, in terms of uh, sustainability, uh, in terms of uh, whether there's any pressure on the receiving end of the assistance that whether you need to reform or not. I'm not saying uh, the Western way is a better way or the Chinese way is an inferior way, but China and the Chinese leadership should need to look at this is whether your assistance to these countries uh, will actually benefit the people uh, that, that are supposed to, to receive these benefits, you know, creating uh, jobs and uh, employment and, and other things. I think this is something uh, probably uh, Chinese leaders and Chinese people should uh, pay some attention to. Mm -hmm. John, you asked a question a while ago about differences between the United States and China. I think one of the most highly publicized differences is in the United Nations Security Council, <clears throat> where the United States shares with, with China and with France and Great Britain and Russia the right to veto any resolution in the, in the uh, Security Council of the United Nations. And we have uh, a very uh, eager American policy of trying to have uh, United Nations decisions that tell other countries what to do inside. Sometimes it's very beneficial. Now we're trying to get Iran, for instance, to stop processing nuclear fuel. And in the past, we tried to get um, uh, Sudan to stop abusing uh, the Darfurians and so forth. I, I don't mean to criticize the United States, but, but we insist on China joining with us in condemning the government of Iran or condemning the government of, of uh, Sudan, and the Chinese won't do it. And, and that causes uh, some argument and dissension and criticism among American political leaders and American people and news media of China. But, but China has, a, I think, an unalterable aversion to intruding into internal affairs of another country. 
And the main reason is that China doesn't ever want the United Nations to intrude into internal affairs of China in dealing with Taiwan or in dealing with Tibet or in dealing with the Uyghurs and so forth. So th that's going to be a, uh, a permanent difference, which uh, could be serious on occasion, but which we have to accept. I, I can't envision in my lifetime China changing that policy because that's a deeply ingrained uh, policy of the Chinese government leaders and their people. It is an irony of history, though, is it not, that uh, China, which is a people's republic and was once part of a global communist movement, is now defending in the name of sovereignty and territorial integrity a 17th century European construct and concept. And it's a very conservative one in a globalized world. So I guess this gets back again to how we understand our respective dynamics internally, because I sense that the Chinese youth are very nationalistic, very easy to be uh, aroused if they think we're interfering in the, their internal affairs or ours. I wonder if that impression that I have about the constraints on leaders in China due to a, 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 a grassroots concern about China's pride, your point that this would go on, is in fact the right one. Is that, that uh, a concern? That's true, because uh, Chinese people really show great concern about the territory unification. Because ever since uh, 1840 Open War, China was uh, invaded or bullied by the other foreign countries, capitalist countries. So even some of the older people still remembered during the World War II time. So you know, in Shanghai, a lot of concessions because of all this you know, open war. And the big board there saying Chinese and dogs are not allowed to get into the park. So they still remember this kind of uh, you know, very sad and uh, terrible you know, memory. So that's uh, it's kind of a, when you talk about territory unification, so it's very sensitive issue, not only for older generation, but also for the young people. That's because I think from the history we went through. But today we are very happy to see that uh, you know, the living standard of people being increased dramatically. And uh, now a lot of people think China now should take an even more important role in all these international issues. But we think we should study how to be a country, a big country with responsibility. So we are weak in some, you know, like uh, you know, still we are not that uh, rich. People think we are because of the Olympic and also our National Day celebration. <laughs> However, we will see the people who live in the countryside or in the remote areas still have a lot of things to do. But we will see, generally speaking, our GDP grows very fast. Even this year, yeah. probably will be 8 point yeah. something sure. percent. So it's kind of like a miracle thing. But we are you know, still facing a tremendous challenge especially when you talk about these international issues like climate changes, the global warming, we should really be understand, be noticed that we are a country, a big country with such a big population, but we should be a big country with responsibility. We must work with other countries because one country cannot solve you know, like global warming, this kind of uh, issue. You know, one of the interesting things that 
Rosa and I noticed this past two, a week, week before last. We happened to be in Vietnam. And uh, one of the things that Deng Xiaoping told me when he was in China, I mean, in the United States in uh, January of 79 was, uh, very secretly, just he and I and the interpreter there, I'm going to invade Vietnam. And I said, please don't do it. You know, we've already had war with Vietnam. Don't do it. He said, we have to teach Vietnam a lesson. And I said, well, how, how long are you going to stay in Vietnam? And he said, I don't know yet. I said, well, please make it brief. And he did. He, he was only there just for a couple of weeks. But he had to teach a lesson. But the uh, fact was that the president of Vietnam with whom we were meeting was very proud of the fact that they have good relationships now between Vietnam and China. And if you look down the list of all the uh, controversial nations in the world, China has good relationship with them all. China and Iran, China and Burma, China and Vietnam, China and North Korea. You could go down a long list. It would be hard to find any country on earth with which China does not presently have good diplomatic and trade relationships. I think we could learn some lessons in that respect because uh, a lot of those countries, we don't even speak to them. We don't even talk to them. We don't communicate with them. We don't try to resolve our differences through diplomacy. We are also learning, you know, changing our concepts, especially for our business people. We have an old Chinese saying, when you do business, we always say, Ni si wo guo. that means uh, you die, I live life. If. <laughs> survive. Yeah. But today we try to learn win-win situation. So no party should be killed by you know, whatever you do. We should try to yeah. find the, you know, common interests and be beneficial from both sides. That's where we really learn this kind of things. Yeah. When you do business, you should let other people making money and then you also make money. Be happy. That's something we want to, you know, new concepts. President Carter, when you normalized with, with, with China, did you call other leaders of the world who might have an interest in that relationship, like yes. the Prime Minister of India? I did. I called, uh, first I called uh, Brezhnev in Russia, Soviet Union then, because I knew that he would be up the wall, which he was, <laughs> to see a possible alliance of the United States and China against the Soviet Union. And obviously, I called the uh, premier of uh, Japan and India, China's direct uh, neighbors, and South Korea, mm -hmm. uh, as well as others. I, those are the ones that I called personally. But that was a very uh, important thing then for many nations that had relationships disturbed or friendly with China to think that uh, the new relationship between China and the United States would adversely affect them. So we had to reassure them that it was a peaceful uh, commitment. And then later that same year, in 79, I met with uh, Brezhnev uh, to negotiate an arms control agreement, SALT II. And the main concern he had was the new relationship between the United States and China. This was a, although that was not my intention, that was a major backbreaking development for the Soviet Union mm -hmm. uh, in their competition with us in the Cold War. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were losing uh, all over the world, as a matter of fact, but that was the main thing that, mm -hmm. about which they were concerned. Mm -hmm. 
You know, another thing to get to a more personal basis uh, between differences between the United States and China, we discussed this in Mary's class yesterday, is the savings rate. I, I noticed the recent uh, uh, data that just came out the last this week, an average Chinese citizen saves 50% of the family income in savings bonds and investments and so forth. Uh, the savings rate in the United States now is zero. When I was president, it was 7%. But now in the last number of years, it's dropped down to zero. We save nothing on an average American family. So this means that in the future, China's going to have more and more uh, savings of the Chinese people, we, which we're going to have to borrow. And eventually, <laughs> really, eventually, we're going to have to do something about that in the United States. And, and it's going to be a very difficult political decision for American leaders either to cut back on expenditures or to raise taxes to balance our budget. We've reached an alarming level of, uh, of federal debt. And the Chinese, on the other hand, have enormous surpluses uh, that they can use to stimulate their own economy or to invest in rapidly improving their um, alternative energy sources. They are in the forefront of, of wind power and photovoltaic cells, solar power, and so forth. So, so they have the freedom now to invest. So we're going to be in competition with the Chinese, and, and I think we're going to have to do some self-correcting in this country to make sure we can compete successfully and peacefully. Should we welcome Chinese foreign direct investment here? Is there areas where we should not? I think we should. Mm -hmm. Sure, I think the more mutual investments we make, let them equal our investment in, in uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and Walmart and Coca-Cola sales, uh, I think it'd be good to have the Chinese invest here. Great. President Carter, I think you've touched on what is really one of the most, going to be one of the most difficult aspects of our relationship. You know, 70% of Americans today in some poll said they felt threatened by China economically. And if you think back to the challenges that you dealt with earlier, whether it was Taiwan or human rights, those were really issues Americans cared about, but they were not gut-wrenching mm -hmm. domestic issues. And now we're really looking at a gut-wrenching domestic issue. And one of the things I find it's hard, people feel that there's something unfair happening out there. Uh, it's very hard to uh, take just the point of savings which you've made. Uh, Americans, uh, popular opinion, do feel that China is going to, has already become a threat to us. And so why should we help them, for example, with technology for green, for, uh, green technology? China has all this money. Why should we put money into the bank for China to spend to improve its uh, green technology? How do you think we can work our way through this over the next five years or 10 years without really coming into uh, ongoing uh, tension and conflict? Well, I think we need to basically give up our effort to change what's happening in China and to be repetitive. What I just said a few minutes ago, we need to start correcting our own economic circumstances in our own government. But it takes a lot of uh, political courage to raise 
taxes on America to balance our budget or to cut our deficits or to withdraw from Afghanistan and Iraq uh, in a peremptory way and do things that would save money. And uh, I don't think we need to fear uh, China's uh, becoming ascendant in economics. We're still enormously more powerful uh, in our gross national product and so forth than is China. But they are growing so rapidly that uh, I think it is a matter of us to be cautious about what we do ourselves. Uh, I, I saw the same poll, and, and it's very disturbing. Uh, the American public opinion polls show that uh, we fear China more than we do any other country on Earth, uh, not only economically, but politically, and even militarily. And we don't back off, but China is increasing their military expenditures. But we have to realize that the American military budget is greater than the military budgets of all the other countries on Earth combined. China plus Russia plus Great Britain plus France plus Israel even, greater than all of them. And so we don't need to fear uh, China militarily. We just need to make sure we don't ever come into a conflict with China. Uh, that we can't resolve through diplomacy and through correcting our own mistakes. And uh, I think that mutual respect and easy communication is the best way to ensure that we don't make a tragic mistake in the relationship. Do you think if we, sir, if we had an incident like uh, happened during the Clinton administration when the president of Taiwan went to his alma mater in Cornell and it led to an immediate escalation of conflict across the Taiwan Straits. Would that happen today? China and Taiwan seem to be making their own accommodation, but yet it's a sensitive issue. You know, I don't think so. That was a big problem when I normalized relations with China, was what to do with Taiwan. Because we did have a, a treaty that had a one-year notice before either one withdrew, and I had to wait a year. And it took about that long to get legislation to the Congress to let us continue to trade and have commerce with Taiwan without diplomatic relations. So I, I think that um, what's happened in the last Taiwanese election was that the Taiwanese people chose a leader that made it clear that he would try to get along harmoniously with China. And I think that um, exchange of tourism and, and investments back and forth has helped to ensure that, that we won't have an, a uh, mistake made in the future that would cause some military conflict between China mm -hmm. uh, on the mainland and Taiwan. If that happened, there would be tremendous political pressure on the American government to intercede, which I think would be a, a tragic situation. But I remember in the days of John Kennedy, when he was uh, debating on television with Nixon, one of the main things was Kimoy and Matsu, uh, two little tiny islands between Taiwan and China. It was, it was the number one uh, international military issue between Nixon and, and Kennedy. Well, uh, I think that my normalization and my commitment that we would continue to deal with Taiwan uh, every way except diplomatically, and at the same time recognize that Taiwan was part of China, which confirmed what Nixon said, was a, a premise or a formula that can survive in the future. 
and to and to add on to Mary's point to keep this theme a little bit about how we avoid misunderstandings, President Obama has got to hold 60 votes in the Senate in order to pass health care. And there are a lot of Democratic senators who don't like this trade issue with China, who want to see protection, who want to see tires. Uh, can, can a U.S. president manage this relationship under these circumstances? And is there a danger that the Chinese would miscalculate our actions in that regard, which are really driven by the concern about health care? Are you asking me? Yeah. Well, well <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not talking to myself. <laughs> well, they are. The main thing we are insisting on now for China economically is that they uh, increase the value of their currency, the yuan. Uh, as you probably know, the Chinese decided in the past to tie their currency value to the U.S. dollar. And lately, the U.S. dollar has gone down compared to all other currencies, and that means that the yuan has also gone down in value when most uh, unbiased economists in the world assure that the yuan is undervalued. And, and this cheap currency in China means that China can sell their products abroad much easier than they can buy foreign products for themselves. And since we have an enormous negative trade balance with China, we buy much more from China than we sell them. Uh, it kind of aggravates that problem. But it's a sovereign country. And I think we have just about as much uh, chance of uh, forcing the Chinese to change the value of their currency as the Chinese have the right or authority to tell the U.S. Congress what to do about some issue that, that concerns them. Uh, I think Ch China will continue to make their own decision. And if they do increase the value of the yuan, it'll be because of their own domestic considerations and not pressure from the United States. Yahweh, would you agree? I want to actually go back uh, to the war issue that President Carter mentioned. Uh, Deng Xiaoping oh, is really smart, because when he came over here, you know, he already made the decision to invade Vietnam, uh, but he wanted to come over here to show that there is solidarity uh, between the United States and China so that Moscow uh, could not really act. You know, I wrote one of the papers when I was at Emory, but that's not my point. My point is, uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the treacherousness uh, of ideology. You know, Vietnam and China, China and Soviet Union used to share the same ideology. It didn't prevent them from going into conflict even to fight a war. Now, China and the United States don't share the same ideology. Uh, however, that doesn't prevent the two countries from coming together. But still, uh, the ideology, as Mary mentioned, this fear of China actually has a lot to do with American people believe American exceptionalism, that you know, American way of life is the way of life and China has to follow. And China, of course, more and more uh, aggressive in saying you know, there is no American way of life. We have to follow. We have our uh, exceptional, you know, Chinese exceptionalism. So people say that's you know, Washington consensus versus Beijing consensus. I guess the key here is to find common ground so that the, the two consensus uh, can get closer to each other. Uh, otherwise, you know, I think that fear uh, is going to be there. It will be, become a very huge uh, hurdle uh, in terms of dealing uh, with the bilateral relationship. John, one of the questions I get quite often is, is about how human rights 
have changed in China in the last 30 years. And I think there's been a tremendous improvement. There's still some problems in both countries. But when Rosa and I visited China in 1981, for instance, it was impossible for a Chinese family to move from one village to another without getting permission in advance. And there was zero opportunity for a family to earn a profit and keep the money. And when Deng Xiaoping came over here in, in 1979, uh, he asked me one of the most intriguing questions at the state banquet. He said, you've done a lot uh, to help China. Is there anything I can do for you personally? And I said, yes, there is, as a matter of fact. Uh, when I was a little child, the heroes in my life were Baptist missionaries to China. And I used to give a nickel a week to help build hospitals and schools for Chinese children. And now you don't permit freedom of worship, and you don't permit Bibles, and you don't permit missionaries. And my request to you is that you do those three things. He said, I'll have to think about that. So <laughs> the next morning, we had breakfast together. And he said, I've, I've decided to honor two of your requests. We'll guarantee freedom of worship in China, which they did in 1982 at the National People's Congress and we'll immediately authorize the distribution of Bibles. So when Rosa and I went to China in August of 81, we visited uh, some churches to see if he kept his promise, and they were very proud of their new Bibles. <laughs> and we visited an Anglican church in Shanghai, and they said they, that the uh, publisher of the Bible had run out of special paper, the thin paper, and the Deng Xiaoping had got the special paper for them. And, and the fact is that um, since then, religious freedom has paid off in an incredible way. There's still some restraints. The last time I met with Hu Jintao, the premier, I asked him to remove the requirement that churches have to register with the government. And I hope that someday China will do that. But even the ch churches that don't register are not harassed unless there's special circumstances. But this past January, a, a Catholic magazine stated that there were uh, 100,000 new Christians in China every day. And if you figure out the percentage, that's just one person for every 100,000 people. But they also estimated that within 10 years, China will have more Christians than any other nation on earth. Hmm. Now China is third behind the United States and Brazil. But China's conversion of Chinese people to Christianity is the most rapid on earth now. And so that, that's another indication, in my opinion, of how human rights have changed in China. And, and the guarantee of freedom of worship is not just to uh, Christians. It's not just to Protestants. It's to Muslims and, and uh, people who worship in different ways. So I, I think that's another indication of, uh, of improvement in China. Well, that, that, that's very helpful, and it complements a card I was just handed with a question that you and Yahweh might be able to address. 
that also talks to kind of the individual level of commitment to a better world, and that's the special challenges facing village elections in China today. And the question is, how is that different from when the Carter Center got involved? Indeed, how did the Carter Center get involved with doing village elections? I think you should <laughs> talk about your experience you know, of observing the village elections. Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are 600,000 little villages, and they're not part of the Communist Party system. Uh, Mary told me yesterday that about seven, six or seven percent of the Chinese people belong to the Communist Party. And the little villages are not part of the Communist Party. That starts with townships, which is pretty big sized towns, and then counties and then provinces. And each one of those groups increasingly choose the ultimate delegates to go to the National People's Congress that write their laws and change their constitution in effect and so forth. But the little villages uh, were authorized in 1982, so shortly after normalization, to have uh, democratic elections. And five years later, they have the National People's Congress every five years, they required this to happen. And then about 10 years later, the Carter Center helped them revise the law. And, and we've, Yahweh's been in more places than I, but Rose and I have, have witnessed uh, these remarkable elections. In a little village, everyone is registered to vote automatically when they reach the age of 18. And they're expected to vote. And the people that run for public office, we would, we would call a mayor and city council, five of them, are elected for three-year terms. And the process is beautiful. On election day, all the people that are registered to vote come and put their little stools in a square, in the town square, and the candidates for office make a campaign speech from a platform. And they limit them to about two or three minutes campaign speech. And then when they get through with the campaign speeches, the people go up and they cast a secret ballot with a little screen so nobody can see how they vote. And then they, when everybody's finished voting, they sit back down and they take the big ballot boxes and dump them on the table and they count them and they tabulate them on a blackboard and they announce who won. And they take office that day and they serve for three years and they can run for re-election. But the, the trick is that quite often they tape record the campaign speech. So if that same candidate runs for re-election, they replay what they promised three years earlier. So there's a pretty good turnover in the election process. But it's a, it's a beautiful process. Uh, we thought, this is kind of presumptuous, that if the little village elections showed that they were successful, which they have, that the Chinese government might move it up to the township level and so forth, you know. That was our hope, which we didn't talk about, but we accepted privately, but we talked about it. But that hasn't happened. And now there's been kind of a, a, a restraint placed on any further progress. And one reason is that the little villagers and their elected officials think they can make their own decisions. Whereas the Communist Party leaders from a township looking down on the little villagers think that they still have the authority to make the decisions. And there are, there are a lot of conflicts and arguments. If there's a decision made, for instance, to put a factory near the little town, the Communist Party leaders probably know about it and they try to go in and they decide where it's gonna be placed and confiscate the property where the little villagers think they ought to make the decision themselves. So there are a lot of those conflicts taking place. So that's, that's one reason it's kind of slowed down 
the process that we experience. But uh, the Chinese have, uh, have adopted that little village election policy to the extent that the National People's Congress is now revising the law to improve it, not to do away with it. So I think that still uh, 900,000 Chinese people, which is a large part of it, 1.3 billion, uh, ha have experienced themselves the chance to participate in democratic elections. Joey, anything to add? No, I think President Carter uh, has said it so beautifully that these elections are indeed very beautiful. And uh, 900 million uh, Chinese villagers do vote every three years. And uh, recently, I think, in addition to what President Carter has said, uh, one concern is there is more and more vote buying uh, among these uh, uh, villages. Uh, so we talked to the Ministry of Civil Affairs and said, you know, what are you going to do with these <coughs> vote buying? Uh, they told us there are two things. Number one, uh, vote buying actually is a sign of the competitiveness of these elections. <laughs> if these elections are not competitive, you know, who would care uh, to pay the voters to get them elected? Uh, number two said, you know, actually uh, the law itself uh, is a little insufficient because the law doesn't define what vote buying is. So they need to amend the law, which is now uh, being, will be debated, I think, sometime this month. And hopefully by March of next year, the amended law will be promulgated. So once they have a better uh, definition of what is vote buying uh, or uh, rigging the election, uh, as well as punishment for that, this could have uh, been corrected or, or you know, things are going to improve. Uh, thirdly, President Carter mentioned, you know, our wish actually is to see village elections being elevated to the township and to the county. Uh, that's the same wish of the Chinese leaders. You know, when Peng Jin, we all call him the godfather of village elections. When he tried to get the law passed, he basically said the villagers will learn how to run their villages, and then they're going to learn how to run their townships, and then they're going to learn how to run the counties. And Premier Wen Jiabao last year at the United Nations when he was interviewed, uh, by CNN, he said the same thing. Uh, so it's the wish of the Chinese leaders, it's the wish of you, and we're all keeping our fingers crossed to see that wish come to fruition. Thank you, we're, we're running a, a little time, time. I got a question for you, uh, Madam uh, Lee, and a question for Mary Bullock that you might, might struggle with as our con in our concluding comments. One questioner asked, who do you think are the best ambassadors for Chinese culture and another asked, how can we citizens of the United States help further U.S.-China relations and vice versa? So perhaps you and Mary might have the last words in this exchange. The first one, who was the ambassador? Who do you think are the best ambassadors for Chinese culture? President Carter? Yes. I think so, because... Uh, after all, it would, uh, you know, it's already a joy for us to listen to his uh, comments, his speech, because I think uh, President Carter really understands China and Chinese history very well, especially even today, because he witnessed all the changes happened in 30 years. That's we actually admire and respect him a lot. That's why we invited him to come to the opening ceremony of our, of our photo exhibition, which we you know, commemorated the 30th year anniversary of its establishment, diplomatic ties, early this year. And also we now 
that means to have a closing ceremony here because we really thank him a lot for you know, the signing the diplomatic relations with China. Absolutely, I believe President Carter would be cultural ambassador who really made a great contribution <laughs> to the relationship. Marie, any last well, point? I think the future of U.S.-China relations lies in the hands of the young people of America and mm. of China. And I think China has a very strong sense of generational cohort uh, in terms of bringing in a new leadership group every 10 years or so. Uh, I think our young mm. people today in this country and in China don't really know each other that well. I think these are different generations. And so I was delighted that President Obama seems to have committed to send something like 100,000 American students to China. We know many Chinese students are coming here. But I think forging ties between the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds mm -hmm. in this country is really how you'll shape the future. I would like to add. Yes. Because uh, we really pay a great attention on young people exchanges. For example, early next year, we are planning to bring senior high students from Beijing to visit Hawaii, BYU, Hawaiian campus. And we will host a speech contest, kind of dialogue with American students from the, with the university where President Obama used to study there. So we will let the students to speak this time in English. How do you think about China and the United States? And we will bring them not only to Hawaii, you know, BYU campus, but also to Washington, D.C., Seedwell School. Uh, they have a very special you know, class for teaching Chinese. And uh, we hope those students can meet President Obama because his daughter studied, now he's studying there. So we think we pay great attention on young people's exchanges. We have been doing this for almost uh, 10 years. And we have already brought 2,000 Chinese young students coming to the United States. So we will continue to do so. I think we're on the same wavelength here. Well, yes. and, and yeah. we are close to the end of our time, uh, but we, is, is Dr. Lubin Gu in the audience? Uh, Professor Gu, thank you very much. Because you're not mic'd, I'm gonna to have to do this from the stage. Um, Professor Gu is, is president of the Atlanta Student, Chinese Students and Scholars Association and president of the Atlanta Chinese Life Association. And I was asked on the behalf of the association to make a small presentation of President Carter after reading a very brief statement, which is, thanks to the establishment of the US-China diplomatic relations, we have the opportunity to study and work at Emory University. Hopefully with our efforts, we can contribute more to the development of science and world's prosperity and peace. In order to celebrate the 30 years anniversary of China-US diplomatic relations, we have organized three large-scale photo exhibitions. They were exhibited in downtown Atlanta, Emory, Georgia Tech, Georgia State, University of Georgia, and other universities. These events attracted more than 30,000 visitors. It showed China's ancient civilization, reform and opening up, economic takeoff, and many other aspects. During these events, lots of Americans and internationals expressed their willingness to visit China. Welcome to China, and I guarantee you will love it. So thank you very much, Professor Gu, and I believe, aha, maybe you can present this really to President Carter. Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
I'd like to thank you all for coming this evening. Of course, I want to thank our wonderful panel and especially President Carter for sharing with us his firsthand experience in building this wonderful partnership we now know as the U.S.-China family. And so thank you again for coming. This will be broadcast live, uh, webcast on our, and future conversations uh, are on the Carter Center uh, webcast. The next Carter Center uh, conversation is the mental health crisis in Georgia featuring our mental health program on February 16. So please mark your calendar. More information can be found, of course, at our website that I mentioned before. And thank you all very, very much for coming, and thank you. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.